Mark chapter 4 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 1 through 20 this morning. When we think of difficult people to reach, we often tend to think of uncharted territories, maybe places that are in the, we, we would call it, as Christians, we would call it the 1040 window, places where people have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Maybe we even think of our own country. When we think of our own country, we think of hard to reach areas. We think of inner cities, maybe urban areas, the places that are sort of cultural melting pots. However, throughout Jesus' ministry, those weren't the places that were the most difficult to reach. Throughout the church, the apostles, and they were preaching the gospel and carrying the same message that Jesus carried and continuing the ministry that Jesus had, the the non-churched or the people who've never been exposed to the gospel weren't the ones who had the biggest issue with the message of Christ. With Jesus's ministry and the ministry of the early church, the biggest hurdles were people who were actually pretty familiar with the Bible. In other words, the greatest opposition to Jesus and his followers were not from were not foreigners or outsiders, rather the greatest opposition to Jesus's message and the apostles message was actually from the religious crowd. And when I say the religious crowd, it's people who thought they knew the Lord, but did not. It was the people who would call, who could recall the Old Testament and the law. It was people who could publicly hold up an appearance of, of morality. But when Jesus comes on the scene, people like that hated Jesus, not because of the people that he helped or the people that he healed, not because of his miracles, not, it wasn't only because Jesus proclaimed to be God. They hated Jesus because he exposed them for who they really were. Jesus wasn't concerned with their social status or their outward appearances or all the times they didn't drink or cuss or watch rated R movies. That wasn't Jesus's interest. Jesus's interest was in the hearts of those around him. There's actually a place in in Matthew 23 where Jesus is sort of blasting the Pharisees. The Pharisees only would look at, he would, Jesus said, on the outside of the cup. And Jesus said, but you have to clean the inside of the cup until the outside is clean. And the Pharisee wants the outside of the cup to look clean because they think if, if I clean up the outside, if I have the outward appearance of morality or outward the appearance of, of goodness in my life, then God is going to be pleased with me and then I'll be right with God. That was the problem with the Pharisees. That was the problem with the religious crowd. And this is why I believe the hardest people to reach are people who think they're believers but never had really a clear understanding of what the gospel is and what the gospel can do in a person's life, which means just like the religious people in the Bible, they really didn't understand Jesus. This is why we're living in the Bible belt can be very difficult at times in terms of reaching people with the gospel. Jesus is facing here in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 4 a, a similar problem. In Mark chapter four, Jesus is with his disciples and he's touring villages and he's touring towns and he's preaching about the kingdom of God. He's performing miracles and he's healing the sick and crowds of people are following Jesus and they're waiting for what Jesus is going to do next. But even in the midst of this crowd of people, there's sort of these hecklers that are there. There's sort of these people that are ready to, to trap Jesus and say the wrong things so that they can deem him as a heretic. Uh, you even see at the very end of, of um, Mark chapter 3 that these scribes were sent from Jerusalem uh, to really test Jesus and to really see what he would say next so that they could prove to everyone that Jesus cannot be trusted. And so everywhere that crowds are going, then you have this mix of religious people that are ready to, 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 
prove that Jesus is wrong. Even in the last chapter, we even see that they said that Jesus was demon-possessed. This is what they're trying to do. So you can imagine how frustrating it is if you're, if you're part of the crowd and you see Jesus as this loving, compassionate servant who's coming to, to, to heal and, and, and seek and save that which is lost. And now you have these religious people that are speaking out against him and you can't understand why. Why is it that these people are so hard-hearted against Jesus? Imagine if you are a part of this crowd and you see all this happen. So what does Jesus do? He gathers the crowd together and he uses this as a teaching opportunity in the way that people respond to the gospel. And so as this unfolds, I want us to look at how different people respond to the gospel and why that is. We'll look in Matthew or Mark, rather, chapter four. We'll start in verse one. It says, and again, or, or again, he began to speak beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got in a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. Mark shows us Jesus speaks and teaches to this crowd in a very particular way. Jesus uses this opportunity to teach them what, how people respond to the gospel, how certain people respond to the gospel. And he's saying he's, he does it in parables. Now, what is a parable? A parable actually means something thrown alongside of something else. It's kind of strange. People will often read parables and they think, oh, well, parables have a hidden message, or they'll try to break apart each parable down where they think that, that, that everything in the par- parable is symbolic. But ha- here's the problem. Most Parables have one primary meaning. And if you don't see it like that, you might have a lot of confusion. But when Jesus tells a parable, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is a short story to illustrate what the kingdom of God is like. So every time Jesus is telling a parable, he's saying, the kingdom of God is like this, but man's economy is like this. He's showing you the difference between the way that, the, that God's economy works and the way that man's economy works. And so here, Jesus tells this parable of the sower, and Jesus makes this really easy for us because he actually explains each part of this parable. But there's one meaning that Jesus is trying to convey. Look at the second part in verse 2. It says, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some fell uh, along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up, and it choked it, and it, yield, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Now, this is what Jesus says after that. He said, he who has ears, let him hear. So you have Jesus telling this story, this parable, 
of a sower who sows, sow, sows in four different types of terrain. You have the path and what happens with the seed that's thrown on the path. The birds come up and they devour them. You have the rocky ground. What happens when the seed is put on the rocky ground? They didn't have enough soil, so there was no depth and it was depth and it was scorched by the sun. You have the thorns. The thorns, they were, they choked the seeds and it didn't allow them to grow. What happened with the good soil? Well, finally in the good soil, it produces grain. And later he's going to explain each one. But before he does, he makes a really interesting statement in verse nine. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean there are people there who literally have no ears? Well, if you're familiar with the gospels, Jesus makes this statement a lot. He means not, what he's saying is not everyone is going to understand what I'm saying. Other times people say that Jesus Oftentimes when people read parables, they think, well, Jesus said, made these, make statements of parables or spoke in parables so that just anyone could understand them. And, and certainly Jesus was a, an excellent communicator. Jesus did speak in a way that children could understand them. But I, what I want you to see is parables weren't just written as a tool of rhetoric or tool of communicating. Rather, parables were spoken in a way that actually would allow people not to hear him. Jesus didn't use this as a tool just for public speaking. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to him, To you has been given, what does he say? The secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside Everything is in parables. So this might be a bit strange, but the parable of the sower is actually a parable about parables. Don't you find it interesting when somebody asks you to define a word and in the definition, they actually use the word that you're supposed to be defining? It's like, what does this word mean? Well, it means, and they say the word. It's like, that doesn't help me. Jesus kind of does the same thing. What's a parable? Well, a parable, let me tell you a parable by explaining a parable. It's like, what? But this is what Jesus does. Why does Jesus do it this way? He communicates it because he's saying that the parables were there so that my followers, he who has ears, let him hear, would listen. And to the rest, he says, it's just parables. It's somewhat confusing that some wouldn't hear. Look at verse 12. He says, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now here, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 6. And this is after Isaiah saw Jesus uh, seated on the throne and there were angels worshiping him. And he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I I live in a, I live in a a, a city of people with unclean lips. And he says, Jesus, God, I'm I'm willing to do anything that you want me to do. I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. He says, here I am, send me and be careful when you say that to God. Here I am. I'm willing to do anything you want me to do. And And then God says, okay, I want you to go to the most hard-hearted people and tell them that they're hard-hearted. It's like, thank you, God. I can't wait to go on this mission with you. But notice what it says. This is what God says to him, Isaiah 6, verse 9. And he said, go and say to these people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. It's a wonderful, seeker-friendly message right there. Verse 10, 
Make the heart of these people dull and ears heavy and blind in their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, I want you to see these verses uh, in Isaiah because in the New Testament, when God is talking, when, when God's people are dealing with difficult people to reach, this verse is actually used multiple times. You think about John. John is preaching the gospel and all of these people are coming to know Christ and repenting of their sins and they're following through with baptism. And John is astounded that the Pharisees won't listen, that all of these poor and marginalized people are following Jesus, but the Pharisees are there mocking them. And as John is thinking about why in the world won't the Pharisees listen, do you know what the Holy Spirit recounts in John's heart? Isaiah chapter six, you see it in John 12, I'll read in verse 40. John says, oh, that's right. I remember what God says. He says, he is blind to their eyes and hardened their hearts. At least they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke to him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that it would be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from more uh, from, from man more than the glory that comes from God. So he's saying the reason why they don't hear it is because they've hardened their hearts. God has blinded their eyes. God has hardened their hearts because they're dull of hearing. And then he goes on. You even even think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, the evangelist, the one who would take the gospel to the world. He goes in Acts 28 to preach the gospel to his very own people, the Jews who knew him. And he goes in and he preaches and Paul's this powerful speaker and communicator. And when he walks in in Acts 28, he gets mocked by his own people. And so what does he do? He wrestles with this truth and he goes, what, do I, what am I supposed to do? And he reminds himself in Acts 28, verse 25, he says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, to the prophet Isaiah. And then what does he do? He quotes Isaiah 6. Two different times we see John's gospel dealing with difficult people. Why can't they follow? Why won't they obey the gospel? He says, oh, that's right. Isaiah 6 says, some people have hard hearts. Uh, Paul says, why can't the Jews? Why won't they listen to my message? Oh, that's right. Isaiah 6, some people have hard hearts. So why do I show you all this? Because I want you to see the intent that Jesus has here. So in Mark 4, Jesus is he's describing the meaning of the parables. He's showing us how the gospel works in people's hearts. That God opens hearts to, so that so those would receive the gospel, but God also hardens hearts because people have become dull of hearing. This is what God gave John confidence to keep sharing the gospel. This is what God gave Isaiah confidence. It said, hey, it has nothing to do with you, Isaiah, of why these people won't listen. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. God opens hearts, God can harden hearts, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, as a pastor, this gives me incredible confidence. Here's why. Because I know it has nothing to do with me. I know if someone's life is changed because I communicated God's word, I know that that is 100% God's word and God's power penetrating hearts and opening their hearts so they would respond to the gospel. And here's why it gives me great confidence, because I'm not that great of a preacher. 
It says, okay, I can come up here and I could totally mess this up, but as long as I communicate God's word well, I'm trusting that he will use it to open hearts and redeem hearts and and save people from their sin. That gives me incredible confidence. This is why sometimes like on Mondays, I can, I don't feel good about like my presentation or my delivery. And I'm just, I'm just like, oh, that was terrible. Oh, I can't believe I, maybe they're going to fire me. They should just get rid of me. You know, can't believe I did that. And it's one of those that I even asked my wife, you know, how do you think it goes? And she goes, good. Like she does that extra. Huh, and I'm like, that wasn't good. That wasn't good. Okay. Oh, that was not your best. You know, I'm like, oh, you know. And those weeks are always the weeks that somebody's like, man, I just want to say that was da, 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 da. And they just go on and on about what God did in their life. And I'm just like that sometimes. And then the other times God teaches me the opposite lesson. I'm like, man, I feel like I've, I've crushed that one. Right. And nothing, you know. What do you do with that? It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God has to open hearts. I I can't do that with you. I can't manipulate you to that. Only God can do that. Only Christ can do that. That's what he's saying. He's like, the reason why some people understand parables and some people don't is that God is working in their lives. We have no idea what God is doing when we're sharing the gospel. We have no idea what's happening behind the scenes, but this parable, it gives us actually a little bit of insight. Jesus explains the path, the rocky ground, the thorns and the good soil. He starts that in verse 14. He says, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So what happens with the seed that is thrown on the path? He says, Jesus uses the analogy. He says, birds come and take it up. And Jesus says, these birds are like Satan who immediately takes away the word that is sown in them. In Matthew's gospel, it actually says that he snatches away what has been sown in the heart. This is what Satan does, but this person is not a believer. So it's not that Satan can come and if you're a believer can take the word of God away from you. No, this person never had a belief in the gospel. A lot of people are confused by what Satan does. We think that Satan, we look at Satan as the one with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. Many of you think that the work of Satan is like the exorcist or he's maybe he possesses you and you're begin foaming from the mouth and your eyes are rolling back in your head and you maybe say with the creepy like voice that I am legion or something like that. And then that's how we think of Satan, but he's actually in the Bible. He's called an angel of light. That sounds pretty, doesn't it? An angel of light. This is why Satan can be so dangerous because Satan would be appealing to us. Satan's primary purpose is to keep us from understanding or keep people from faith in Christ. And so if you get interested in Jesus, he wants to step in. He wants to create doubts. He wants to create temptations. He wants to create distractions. So that person that Jesus is describing was never really a believer. They heard what they thought was the gospel, but they inherited a false gospel. So they were swept away because it didn't last because Satan is the master of confusion. Satan's the master of false gospels. Think about the prosperity gospel, for one. The prosperity gospel says that 
God's chief end for you is to be healthy and wealthy. Well, anyone would want to buy into that. Who wants to be the healthiest and the wealthiest? But it's not true because it's not consistent with anyone or anything in the Bible. This is why Satan is the greatest prosperity gospel preacher. He wants you to be bought in the lie that the gospel is weak and the gospel is shallow. And notice that the seed, it just, what does it do? It just falls on the path. It's like a leaf that falls on the, on the road. And when you drive past it, it just blows away. It doesn't stick. That's what he's saying. It doesn't last. And Jesus says, some people, when they hear the gospel, it's like that. It's in one ear for a moment. They get distracted and it's blown away. It doesn't stick. It doesn't lead to maturity. Then he uses the second one, verse 16. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they heard the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, then what happens? When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately, immediately they fall away. So here's a person that Jesus, again, describes who was never a believer in the first place. First of all, they have an emotional response. Obviously, God has given us emotions. Emotions were given to us so that we would love God and we would love others. However, we cannot base our entire faith upon emotions because emotions can be fleeting. I had a friend of mine I went to college with, and he was one of the most passionate guys I could ever meet. We had a church history class together um, during summer, summer school. We had like summer classes and we were taking summer classes and it was church history. So it was three hours a day. And every day, I kid you not, like we would take the class, we would get out of class and whatever the professor talked about was going to be the thing that this guy was going to do. So it's like, you know, we would talk about the inerrancy of scripture, the importance of believing that God's word is, is true and that God, God's word needs to be false. So he's like, man, we need to begin debating with people who don't believe this. And he was just like right on this kick. We need to start studying. We need to start knowing our answers so that when people began to ask us these questions, we can be dialogue. I mean, what are we doing, Ben? What are we doing? I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, you're right, man. We need to be doing that. You're right, you're right, you're right. Next day, the, the church history class, it would be something about Muslims. And how Muslims need, man, what do we do? The Muslims, man, they don't know Christ. And we need to go start sharing the gospel with the Muslims. What are we doing, right? What are we doing? We're wasting our time and we're not, you know, we're playing video games. We're watching, we need to be evangelizing the Muslims. I'm like, dude, you're right, man. You're right. Next day, something else, right? He talks about the reformers and how the reformers would study the Bible for three hours a day in the original Greek. Dude, we need to be studying the Bible three hours a day in the original Greek. What are we doing, right? And I'm like, and then we get home and what happens? Hey, you want to uh, make chicken sandwiches and watch Zoolander again? Yeah, cool. All right. You know, it's gone. It's gone. You know, I'm like, I thought we were supposed to be studying the Greek. No, no, this is more fun. Right. And it was done. We'll get on the next kick tomorrow. <laughs> but this is what Jesus is saying. They, they, this person has this emotional response. But what happens? Well, when, as soon as tribulation or persecution occurs, they run from it. They run from it. They like the idea that Jesus died and resurrected and defeated Satan. All the wonderful conquering verses that we're more than conquerors. Well, let me hear that verse. But, oh, don't tell me the verse that Jesus requires anything of me. 
Don't tell me the verse that Jesus wants me to repent of my sins and believe in the gospel. Don't, don't tell me the verse where Jesus says, if you want to be my follower of me, you have to take up your cross and, and follow me. Don't, don't, don't tell me the verse that the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first in your kingdom. Don't, don't tell me the verse that, that if, if they follow you, that, that if we follow Jesus, we'll be hated as Jesus was hated. I don't want to hear that. Give me the good one. Give me the sweet one. Give me the one that's easy, that doesn't require anything of me. Because as soon as anything is required of that person, Jesus says that person, they tap out. This is the reason why is because their faith was never there in the first place. It was a quick and fleeting response. People to follow Christ, they have to count the cost. This is why I'm, I want to just urge people just to, be da- just, to, just to not be dangerous with altar call stuff. Oh, here's, let me get you emotionally charged up and let me get you to respond. And I'm going to rattle off the gospel real quick. And I'm going to rattle through a quick prayer that you pray. Don't think about it. Just do it. No, no, no. You have to count the cost. You have to count the cost. This is what Jesus is saying. These people never counted the cost of what happens. Their faith wasn't real. So what happens when a trial happens? They run away. They never counted the cost. They never trusted Christ to begin with. And then verse 18 and 19 are the more painful ones. And it says, And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves, what's the word? Very key, unfruitful. This one for me is perhaps the most scary because this is what I see the most in this area. It's the idea of being nominal. And I don't want to say nominal Christian because make no mistake about it, this person is not a believer. Because you see the, what, is it, what happens. The plant being choked is not immediate. It's a gradual process. This person grows up and they don't realize their spiritual condition because they're wrapped up in only what benefits themselves, the riches and the treasures of the world. Luke's gospel says this, even, he says it even more descriptive. He says, as they go on their way, they are choked up by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And here's the reason why this one is scarier than the other two. The, on, on the other ones, you, you see the, the one on the path, the one on rocky sh- uh, uh, the rocky s- soil. Those two groups are not in churches very long. But this one right here, these the seeds that fall on the thorns, these are people that can sit and participate in churches their entire lives but never have a true relationship with Christ. What's difficult about this person is they appear like they are Christian. They go to church, they might serve, they might give, might even go to a small group. But even in a small group, this person wouldn't want to be known by others, wouldn't truly pursue others. This person would hide them, their true selves. They wouldn't offer themselves to anyone in a genuine way. They wouldn't want to go deep in relationships or God's word. They wouldn't want to show you their sin or want to go deep in their sin. They have no concern for people who are perishing and 
don't have a relationship with Christ. And Jesus says their fruit does not mature. In other words, this is a person who does not thrive. The community around them doesn't thrive. They stay neutral, and they never really show any evidence of spiritual growth or maturity. How scary is it to think that there are people like that in churches everywhere? How scary is it to think that there's most likely people like that even in this room? And sometimes people, when they read this passage, they say, okay, oh, there's two Christians. There's two non-Christians in the group, and there's two Christians in the group. No. There's three non-Christians in this group. There's only one believer. And that's the one he talks about. Let me show you the difference. Verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are those who notice the difference. What do they do? They hear the word, they accept it, and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. This is the one that takes root. Why? Because this is the one that endures because it's real. The gospel to become real, it's got to take root in your heart. How do we know if the gospel takes root? He says two things. One, bear fruit, but number two, you keep bearing fruit. It it, it multiplies 30, 60, 100 fold, which means that you should be, if you are a believer in Christ, you should be able to look at your life and say, yeah, I'm not who I'm supposed to be, but praise God, I'm not who I used to be either. There's something different about what God has done in my life. And because I can look at my life and see that my faith has matured. I fought sin harder than I used to fight. I don't struggle with this anymore the way that I used to struggle with it. I'm more open in community. I have more of a passion for the laws. I have more of a passion for God's word. It's a faith that matures. It's a faith that grows. And it happens till the end. A true believer is one who endures to the end. That's what Jesus is saying. How do we know if this 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 seed falls on the good soil, it lasts till you see Christ. This is a constant message throughout the New Testament. Paul says it this way in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you, what's he gonna do? Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. John 8, 31, what does Jesus say to the Jews? It says, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. How do we know who your disciples are? They abide in God's word. Uh, Hebrews 3, 14, the writer of Hebrews says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence. How long? Firm till the end. Friends, a true Christian is one who endures to the end. And I love the way Luke's gospel describes this parable on the good soil. He says in Luke, 8.15, 8.15, for that is the good soil, that they, that they are those who, hearing the word, what do they do? Hold fast to it in an honest and good heart, and they bear fruit with patience. How do we know that there's only one believer in this parable? Because a true believer is one who hears. And how do we know if they, if they hear? They're... Their hearing follows with repentance 
and belief in the finished work of Jesus' death on the cross. And from there, they receive a new heart, which means they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who's making them into new people till they breathe their last breath until Christ returns. Which means, believer, you will endure if you are a true believer in Christ. The Holy Spirit won't take a break on you. God loves you too much. The good soil means that because of what Christ has done, because of what Christ has planted in you, it means that you now are an incurable God lover. Do you realize how blessed you are from hearing God's word? Other Matthew and Luke, they both say, blessed are your eyes for they see in your ears for they hear. It's a blessing that you hear God's word and that it's planted and rooted in your heart. So as we think about this parable and as we zoom back and we see Jesus at the sea talking to his 12 disciples, disciples of fishermen and tax collectors, and there's a reason why they can understand him. But the religious crowd the scribes, the theologians of the day could not understand him. And it wasn't due to a lack of intelligence. It was due to a lack of hearing. The Pharisees were dull of hearing. They did not want what Jesus had to offer because it would expose who they really were. And they didn't want to be seen as what they really were, sinners in need of a savior. So Jesus blinds their eyes and hardens their hearts and salvation belongs to the Lord. Perhaps you are sitting here this morning and you know a person who's claimed to be a believer, but there's no real maturity or fruit in their lives that show that they're genuine believers. And perhaps you even see similarities of the first three seeds that resonate with the person or persons that you have concerned about. So what do you do to produce fruit? How do we produce fruit? How do we make things grow? You think about even this landscape out front. You know, we have grass that's being planted. Now we can plant the seeds and we can go outside and say, grow seeds. We can yell at the seed. We can curse at the seed. Is that going to make the seed grow? No. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, seed needs to be nourished. How do you nourish the ground? How do you nourish the soil? Continue to share the gospel. There's three things that, three ways that we produce good soil. It's through grace, love that people see from you. It's through truth, hearing the gospel. And it's through time, trusting that the Holy Spirit would change your life. We continue to do that in hopes to see that others grasp the gospel. And we can trust that God would do the rest, that God would mature it, or that God would prune it. But all of it is God's work. But let us never forget, for those of us who hear, how blessed we are. A lot of people use this text as a warning, and it is a warning. It absolutely is a warning, but primarily the context is Jesus is telling this to his disciples. is actually to serve as an encouragement for believers, to show you how blessed you are that your eyes see and that your ears hear. And so my hope is this morning that this would 
humble us. Because it's not our work that sustains us, but it's his, which means you cannot lose your salvation. It was never yours to lose to begin with. Who does it belong to? It belongs to him. And by the way, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You would. But you can't because it's not yours. It was given to you by Christ, which means, y'all, we can't screw this up. We can't screw this up. Believer, do you realize that you will not be swept away by Satan? Do you realize that you won't fall away through trials? Actually, biblically, you will endure trials. Do you realize that you won't be choked by the riches and the cares of the world? Actually, John's gospel says that you will overcome the world. This is what it means to be a believer, that you have good soil, and that was given to you by God. Blessed are your eyes, for they see. Blessed are your ears, for they hear. So, believer, we have an opportunity this morning. Just thank God for what he's done. And would it also give us a passion and a humility to plead with those who are lost, to give them the soil that they need, that they would, we would show grace, that we would show truth, and that we would give time and allow the Holy Spirit to work in the lives of those around us. We have much to celebrate in Chagley Church. Let us respond to the good news of the gospel.